Welcome to the Reform Journal Podcast, where we're talking about faith and church, scripture and theology, as well as culture, politics, history, literature, arts, and the sciences, with thoughtful, interesting people coming at it from a generously Reformed perspective. Find us at reformjournal.com. This is Jeff Monroe, editor of the Reform Journal. I'm very excited to welcome Thomas Lynch, one of America's most distinguished writers, to our podcast today. Thomas Lynch is one of a kind. He operated the Lynch and Sons Funeral Home in Milford, Michigan for decades. He's an accomplished essayist whose book, The Undertaking, Life Studies from the Dismal Trade, won an American Book Award and was a finalist for the National Book Award. He's a poet who's produced several collections, including his latest, Bone Rosary, which was published earlier this year. He's been the subject of a documentary on PBS. He's written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and a host of others. He's done spoken word pieces for the BBC. Someplace I saw that he was called the Bard of the Midwest, and I thought that was perfect. So Thomas Lynch, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. You start the introduction to Bone Rosary with the line, I started stringing soup bones on a rope for reasons I'm not entirely sure of 10 years ago. And you call that string of soup bones a bone rosary. And you say it's both a symbol of life's deepest questions and also an emblem of the connections poetry makes. So I'd just love it if you would tell us more about the Bone Rosary and what it means to you. Well, it's, you know, sort of more than the sum of its parts. In in many ways, it's the meaning that it took on was coincident with a visit by my dear friend Matthew Sweeney, the bed of heaven to him, who came here in 2016. It was the last trip he made to North America. And I had arranged with Emily Meyer of Harbor Springs to have him as a guest of the Harbor Springs Book Festival. And so Matthew came and we spent, I think it was about three weeks he was here. And I had by that time been stringing bones on a rope for quite some time. And when he said to me, what's that? As he saw me doing this one day on the porch here, I said, well, that's a bone rosary. You know, and that was the first time it came from my mouth. I just like the sound of it. And and it did remind me of a rosary, these soup bones that then my dog Bill, now my dog Carl, just hollows out in his daily office in the morning. It's the first thing he gets is a bone. He lays on the floor. He sucks out the marrow and chews on the bone a little bit, then goes outside and goes about his day. So it's like daily, anything daily. I always associate it with nuns and you know, rosary beads, prayer beads, whatever. Every, I think every religious uh, tradition has something like it. But for me, I like just the sound of the two words with those open O's, you know, bone rosary. Yeah, there's a lot of those. There was another one I hit. Oh, yeah, tuna noodle. <laughs> you know, I love tuna noodle, not so much because of the tuna or the noodle, but because of the sound of those vowels lining up as they do. So, yeah. 
But going around and picking up bones after a dog is a kind of daily office for me. And I do find that the the collection lengthens like time does. It has about a sense of arithmetic. It sounds like an abacus as I'm stringing these things up. And it does seem to be a great deterrent for jihadis and right-wing Christian zealots and people who don't like, you know, my politics or lack of it, whatever. I don't want to be attacked. I live on a dead-end road on a lake, and I'm just worried about, you know, some nasty perch fisherman coming up here and doing me damage. I live alone with this dog. And yeah, I think if they look at it, they'll say, whoever did that is not well. (laughs) And, and, And crazier than we want to tamper with. So, and it's working. So far, nobody tampered with me. Oh, that's great. And it became the title of a collection, of your latest collection. Well, mostly because Matthew, as soon as he heard that, he started writing. He wrote a book, a little chapbook put on Mullet Lake, in which, which included a poem called The Bone Rosary, in which he tried to imagine. But he gives, and I think I include this, I do include this as an epigraph for the introduction, his description of what he sees, which is, I'll, I'll just read it to you real quickly. The big dog's grave is already dug a few yards from the lake, and all the bones he sucked the marrow from are strung on a rope, draped over the porch railing, a bone rosary, waiting to be hooked to a rusty chain hung from a metal post, stuck in the ground, poking over the water. Well, And I don't think Matthew ever saw it festooned with blue blinking Christmas lights, but at night it really, it's really haunting. And I think it haunts... I think we're haunted by the dead. I'm haunted by Matthew Sweeney and his poems and, you know, dozens of other poets, Edna St. Vincent Millay, Emily Dickinson. I mean, this is why we read, to be happily haunted by voices, many of whom are long gone, but we still hear them speaking to us. We still get glimpses of their realities because they wrote them down, you know? Wow. Also in the introduction, you asked the question, how do we come to be the ones we are? Very poetic question, 10 syllables. And I want to talk about that question. How did you come to be who you are? Let's start with, how did you become a funeral director? How'd you get interested in that in the first place? Well, Jeff, as you know, there are, you know, there are obvious answers, and then there are ones that come to us in different ways. So the obvious answer is that I never admired any human more than I admired my father. And that's because in all ways, he just seemed a remarkable guy, you know? You know, he fell in love with a woman in the fifth grade with the redheaded girl of his dreams. And, you know, by the time they had graduated from high school, they had bombed Pearl Harbor. And he, like all the able-bodied men of his generation, had to go off to, you know, save the world from uh, mayhem by creating more mayhem. So he was a combat Marine who served in the South Pacific in battles that turn out to be meaningless. You know, they're footnotes in the general history of war, but they were for him. They made him the man he was. Because I admired him so much, I admired the fact that he came home from the war, he got married, he started making babies, and then went to work as a funeral director. 
And the, mm-hmm. in the fullness of time, he had his own funeral home. And as he always said, six sons, enough for pallbearers and three daughters, enough to keep us in our age. You know, so he sort of had this, whatever happened, he just turned it into the way it works for him, you know. And mm-hmm. so I went into funeral service because my admiration for him. But if I look closely, Jeff, there's a photograph that's part of our family history. It's taken in in June. It's taken like this week in 1934. And it's a picture of the first solemn high mass of my father's uncle, Father Thomas Patrick Lynch, after whom I'd be named in, you know, many years after this picture was taken. The priest was a priest. I think he might have been called because he survived the Spanish flu a hundred years before now. And his mother whispered something to him to the effect that, well, God must have had other plans for you, Tommy. And the other plan gave him the direction to go into the uh, priesthood. He had a call. Was he holy? Was Was he gay? Was he bewildered by the world around him? Or was God speaking into his ear? I can't discern those answers, but I know that he went out west because he was still chesty from his brush with the flu. And they thought, we'll get more mileage out of this priesthood if we send them out to the high, dry air of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, the blood of Christ Mountains. Yeah. And in two years after teaching Apaches, he died and was brought down to the bishop in Santa Fe, who took one look at the corpse and sent him back on the train to Detroit, actually to Jackson, Michigan, collect, as bishops do. And he was taken by agents of the Denoyer Funeral Home. And on the day that my grandfather went to make the arrangements for his brother, the dead priest, he took his son, then 12 years old, who was in that picture I was talking about. He was only 10 then, the only child in the picture. Two years later, he's 12, and he's there in a funeral home listening to the big guys talk about boxes and mum plants and requiems and bagpipers, and he goes wandering through the old house until he sees the the room with a door ajar, and he looks inside, and there are two fellows in, you know, starchy shirts and striped funeral trousers and wingtip shoes, and they're dressing the priest in his liturgical vestments. The priest is the horizontal one, and it's his uncle. And he watches as these men roll the body into their arms and sidestep their way over to the box on the by the wall, let the priest into the coffin, straighten up the garments, and they turn then to see the little boy looking in the door. And it's to that moment, in August of 1934, excuse me, 1936, that my father traces his intention to be a funeral director. Hmm. So I said to him when he told me, he always told the same story. I said, why didn't you want to be the priest? And he'd say, well, the priest was dead. (laughs) He wasn't much given to metaphor, but, you know, he he thought, I'll go with the, the guys who are still up and at it, you know. And, you know, years later, here I am, retired after maybe 50 years of not retired, but not required, as my son says, after 50 years of taking care of one of the six funeral homes that bear my uh, family's name because my father saw that dead priest going into a box. 
Yeah, and then did you go to Wayne State School yeah. of Mortuary Science? Then the only one in, in it's the only yeah. deal in town. Yeah, I did. Yeah. My brother's a funeral director. I did. He went to Wayne State also. Yeah. What year did he graduate? I wonder. Oh, I'm going to guess sometime around 1979, 1980, something like that. Yeah, he was after yeah. me, but yeah, it was still the old building down on Cass and Alexandrian, I believe. Yeah. 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 Well, then, how did you get interested in poetry? Well, I I always read poetry. And of course, prayer is poetry, mostly, you know, angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits me here. And all of our, you know, childhood formulas, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for this food. You know, that's kind of an off rhyme, but that's what my Methodist neighbor, Mike McGaw, used to say instead of, or now I lay me down to sleep and pray the Lord my soul to keep. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. I just love the sound of those things. Like when Yeats was dying, he wrote, Irish poets, learn your trade, sing whatever is well made. It's the same rhyme and meter as twinkle, twinkle, little star. Emily Dickinson, and I think you can try this at home, wrote everything to the same sort of jingle of, you know, the yellow rose of Texas. (laughs) Because... I would not stop for it. It slowly stopped for me. You know, I mean, there's all sorts. Of, there's all sorts of attractions of poetry. For me, it was acoustic, and and then I had a uh, a teacher at university, Michael Heffernan, who really was a poet. He was the first living poet I met, and when he published his first book in 1979, I believe, "The Cry of Oliver Hardy." It came to me in the mail, and I looked at the book, and I said, this is going to outlive him. Those poems will be in the library after Heffernan's long gone. Now, by the grace of whomever's in charge here, Heffernan is still around. The books are in the library, mm-hmm. and I'm betting on the books, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Because uh, the numbers on mortality are fairly convincing, so <laughs> we're all going to be goners sooner or later and uh, so that's how i got into poetry i started sending i started writing poems and i started committing poetry i always say you know yeah and how in the world did you do both at the at the in those early years especially you're raising a family um i don't know how you had time there's a lot of there's a lot of funeral service which is standing and watching and waiting you, you have to be ever at the ready. But a lot of it is waiting for something to happen or someone to come in the door. I remember writing a poem that later found its way to Poetry Magazine on a Sunday afternoon when I was working a visitation at the funeral home. And I, I was, you know, I, I was standing there and I was, I was worried about our dog. His name was Wooly. He was a little Shetland Collie. My then wife and I had had a big fight about, he he was getting very sick. And she thought it would be getting close to having to put him down. And I said, well, if it's a mercy that we're going to do to him, I think I should do it. And we had, we had something of a go around that. I mean, there are people who wanted to be married. We were married and we had these lovely babies and we kept at it and everything like that. But the, I mean, we would fight over such things as if you got to kill a dog, who should do it? Hmm. So I wrote this poem called A Dog with Character. 
and and one, and I sent it to uh, Poetry Magazine, and they took it, and they had already taken a couple. So then I then I thought, well, I'm going to keep this up because even though nobody in my zip code knew anything about Poetry Magazine or anything else, I just figured it, it those poems would outlive me. Hmm. And and how has over the years has poetry sustained you? Well, it's I mean it is the it is the thing without which nothing else happens. I mean I do enjoy writing essays. I love essaying, and I and I enjoy fiction. I like stories, but nothing happens. the The language doesn't come into tune in my at least in my brain box unless I tune it with poetry. It's it seems to be the tuning fork for at least my access to language, because and and poetry is mostly subtraction for me. I mean, it's it's getting rid of everything that's not necessary. Whereas other writing, I, I'm I'm still supposed to be writing a novel now, and you can add and add and add, you know, but poetry is more like whittling, you know, a bar of soap into a you know something beautiful. So how do you know you've written essays, you've written fiction, you've said you're writing a novel right now, certainly poetry, you've written in multiple genres. How do you know uh, what you're writing at any moment? And, and how do you know which direction or which genre to use? And, and what's the experience in each different, each different genre of writing? Well, I can say that poetry almost always happens to me uh, in the year first, I, I come up with a line, you know, the thing you fear the most will hunt you down. There's 10 syllables worth hearing again, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if I have a poem with that in there, but I remember hearing it and saying that I'll remember. I heard it from a father whose daughter had died of a childhood leukemia that that tarried until she was into her 20s before it killed her. And they were Lutherans, and I heard that at the Lutheran church. I can't tell you the year, but I remember watching him at the lectern trying to eulogize his daughter, and I was in the back of church, and he said, the thing you fear the most will hunt you down. And I've I've never forgotten it. But part of that is because it sounds like a line from, you know, from Edna St. Vincent Millay, what lips these lips have kissed and where and why the thing you fear the most will hunt you down when you are old and gray and full of sleep how how we came to be the ones we are <laughs> it's the it's your heartbeat it's your heart it's the dum of your heartbeat hmm. Hmm. the other genres i've always told uh, my students at workshops and stuff like that that you're only going to get a couple or three good thoughts in your whole life. You may as well get as much mileage as you can from them. So after I've written the poem, I start thinking about the essay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, stories pop out of that kind of stuff. You know. And yet it's for an essay or a series of essays for the book, The Undertaking is really the one that uh, you're probably most known for. Well, people read that because poetry, they don't, as we were saying earlier, we don't like to read poetry. I mean, I do. I, I read poetry all the time. And I think 
writers are basically readers who go karaoke. It's the same thing. You know, it's, you go to, you go to, you hear enough sermons and pretty soon you're sitting in the back of church saying, I can say that better than that guy. You know? Yeah. That happens in church. And unless you get the opportunity to actually stand and deliver, you keep thinking that foolishness. But if somebody says, yeah, you preach next Sunday, you'll be quickly disabused of the notion that you can do whatever you want. It's like the guy that says, you know, and when I retire, I'm going to write a novel. And I say, yeah, I'm going to take up brain surgery. You know, <laughs> there is, there is, this is a life's work. It's not like a, a weekend. It's not like going to a garage sale, you know. So, yeah, you don't learn to preach overnight. Mm -hmm. But I've sat in church when I used to go to church. I used to sit there all the time and say, I could do that. And then one wise priest said, I hear you have a book of poetry out. Come and, come and read us a few for the sermon on Sunday. I'll take the day off. I mean, I've never been as nervous in my life. And I've spoken to big crowds of, of, of ignoramuses and brilliant people, you know. But I never was so frightened as standing at uh, the pulpit in a church. Why do you think that was? Well, you've heard of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> <laughs> I we were reading. I I'm in a Bible study group that meets at six thirty in the morning on Tuesdays. So this morning I came downstairs to get ready for. It. I think we're just wrapping up at the with the Book of Jude. But one of the one of the I forget what verse it is says if you can't if you can't do it with compassion do it with fear you know? <laughs> now different translations drop that fear because it's sort of out of vogue but I have I have what's called the King James the New King James version of the Bible and fear is in it <laughs> so anyway I I'm I was fearful. Well, those are great stories. I'm enjoying them. You can just tell stories all day. It'd be it'd be fine with me. I'm enjoying them. Well, you're very kind, but that's one of the reasons why I live alone on a lake with a dog. <laughs> <laughs> There's nobody eager to come up here and do that. I mean, but I do t spend a good part of every day reading and a good part of every day typing. Yeah. And some, some days it rises to the occasion. Hmm. Well, you've had this experience, this lifetime, 50 years of helping people through tragedy and loss, but you've also experienced tragedy yourself as a father. And you lost your daughter, Heather Grace, this last year. You wrote a beautiful piece in the Christian Century that reflected on your own loss in the midst of the pandemic in a time when so many people were experiencing, I mean, we all experience loss in some way during the pandemic. I'm just wondering if you talk more about that experience and how you're reflecting on it now. Well, I think, I think particularly the people who experienced the death in the family in these pandemic, in these pestilent times when we couldn't gather together the way we normally would. I, I, I've always thought that, that funerals were a pretty good way of handling a death in the family. And one of the notes I got when my daughter, and she'd been, we'd been losing her for years to what I would just say was a form of mental illness, which, and then she had a 
a traumatic brain injury, a fall from a horse, when she was, I say, probably very, she was doing what she loved to do the most, and but she fell and hurt her head, and this exacerbated the symptomatology of her, and uh, so when she leapt from a bridge in California, when she died by suicide, it was like the final fatal symptom of an ongoing illness that resisted our best impulses to intervene or to seek counsel or medication or hospitalization, all of which we did and proved to us the eventual helplessness that all of us feel in the face of death because you can't, there's not, there's not enough time, nor money, nor talent, nor brain power, nor technology, or anything else to undo this mortality that is resident in, the, in, our, in our begatting, to use a biblical term. We are begat with the seeds of our, our undoing in us. Now, I feel a kinship with so many families around the globe around the geography, around the zip code, who could not gather as they normally would with their family of faith or their family of blood or their family of community, whatever whatever people come who are brave enough to, you know, to show up and pitch in and do their part, to say, I'll take my part of this grief. That was, that was not possible through this past god-awful year. And so I do feel a kinship with the uh, families of uh, the victims of this pestilence. Whatever, whatever was bad got worse in the age that we've been in in the last, I'm going to say the last five years have been especially desolate. And I, and I think a lot of that we are responsible for. I think when we follow our our worst impulses rather than our better better angels when it comes to leadership or governance or that type of thing, I think we pay the price. Did you feel like um, your background as a funeral director prepared you in ways for what you experienced? No. Not, not particularly. No, I, I can't. I mean, I had been with many, many families like me and my family, and I had seen that helplessness and desolation, you know, that sense of abandonment. I mean, this is the book of Job, as you know yourself, Jeff. It's, this is why they wrote the book of Job to let you know that there is no end to suffering. And there is no, there is no you're not the first one, right? <laughs> yeah. And you can you can organize a fist to shake in the face of whomever's in charge here. And the answer comes back a version of where were you when I made the world? Mm-hmm. It's none of your business. Why me? Why not? <laughs> you know? Why not? Yeah. And so the experience of death prepares us for uh, faith and for apostasy. 
And for me, it's always been provisional. I mean, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I can agree sometimes that God's doing a great job. I'm glad he's in heaven or she is, whoever it is. But Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, I think, maybe not. Maybe she took the day off. Or maybe she's trying to convince me that she's not all-powerful or all-good at the same time. So yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit more about that, because you do express a lot of different religious inclination in your poetry. Sometimes you express a lot of uncertainty, at other times hope, faith, and yet you always seem to express a respect, I think, for the traditions of the church. And just in our conversation, you've said, well, when I used to go to church, but then you've said, well, I was at the Bible study this morning. So, yeah, just yeah, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I am named, as I've told you, for a dead priest, but not incidentally for a famous doubter. You know, they never said Thomas in my childhood without saying doubting Thomas. I, yeah. I'm, I don't know if I'm as doubtful as I'm contrarian. And there are people who give uh, Christianity a good name. You see the love that we're supposed to bear towards one another in them. But there are as many or more who look like posers. Hmm. And when I said the last four or five years, it seems to be the age of posing. You know? And I don't think it's our better angels that got us there. I think it's our own, you know, interests, our own selfish self-interests. But that's just me. But in my own life, my experience has been some days it seems like a loving God's in charge. Others, it seems like we are entirely alone. Mm -hmm. So somebody wanting to make a point, I think, emailed me. I forget what I had said or done that had made a statement that he didn't like, but he wanted to say, are you a believer? And I said, yeah, I am. I believe in some things and others, not so much, you know, the best possible answer I can give you to this, Jeff, is one I'll steal from Robert Ingersoll, who was a great apostate, uh, a great agnostic. He was not incidentally the son of the manse like little Jackie Wesley and, and you know, I'm sure the Thundering Scott had somebody, you know, who, who learned from, from Ingersoll says, I, I know nothing, I believe nothing, I deny nothing, I live in hope. Hmm. And I'd say that pretty much covers it for me. I don't know if it's Mother Nature or Father God in charge. I don't know. I just know it's not me. You know, uh, Tom is not in charge. And anytime I've tried to be in charge, I'm, I'm quickly reminded of how much I'm in error. So as long as I, I believe, I do believe in a power greater than myself because I'm instructed to do so. But if that power is the creator of the universe or the, the you know, I, I, I don't know. I haven't a clue. I live in hope. Well, I would love it if you would read a couple poems 
and we could talk a little bit about them. And in the from the newest Bone Rosary, I should mention has it's kind of a greatest hits collection. It's got poems from throughout your career, and then there's a new section in the final section, the Cloud of Witnesses. There's one I'll mention. There are two of them that that have some similarities in my mind. One is called Theodicy, a Lament, which is a very, well, it's, a, it's about theodicy. But this poem, Libra, is the one that I'd like you to read. I, I thought in some ways only a funeral director could, could write this. It deals with suffering in a very personal and poignant way. And just wondering if you'd read that and, and then maybe share a few thoughts about how that came to be. Oh, I will. I And thank you for reading these closely. Libra, as we know, is a, I suppose it's a star sign or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the, the symbol for it is uh, someone holding the scales, letting them tip. And I, I've often felt like that. Today, it seems like God's in charge and loves us all. Amen. Tomorrow, it seems like we are entirely alone. And I think what we mostly try to achieve is some sort of equipoise, you know, some sort of balance between what we have faith in and what we doubt. So so Libra is the star sign for for me, for anybody born and when I was born. And so I often think of that. It's impossible to make decisions. One of the reasons I hired an assistant was to make my decisions because I don't make them that well. So if somebody says, you know, smoking or non-smoking, I just say, you know, pick your own. I don't care. (laughs) Libra. The one who pulled the trigger with his toe, spread eagled on his girlfriend's parents' bed and split his face in halves above his nose so that one eye looked east, the other west. Sometimes that sad boy's bifurcation seems to replicate the math of love and grief, that zero sum of holding on and letting go by which we split the differences with those with whom we occupy the present moment. Sometimes I see that poor corpse as a token of doubts, sure twin and double-mindedness of certainty and countervailing guess, the swithering, the dither, righteousness like Libra's starry arms outstretched in love or supplication or at last surrender to the scales forever tipped in this cold sky. So, yeah, no answers there, but I can remember, I've often thought, Jeff, my father, hey, he was a cagey guy, you know, (laughs) he'd seen some terrible things and I think it did him damage. But I think in some ways it it steeled him against I mean he was a deeply he was a deeply decent man, but I I think his experiences at war and combat specifically, you know, were wounds. He wasn't himself wounded except by what he'd see, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was I think I was about fourteen or fifteen working around the funeral home. And he sent me down to the embalming room to ask the embalmer a question, probably about, did he want some Coney Island hot dogs for lunch or something like that, you know. When I looked into that room, there was this young man. We'd, I'd heard about him because it was, you know, it's a, it's a thing that happens. When, when a guy shoots himself in, on his girlfriend's bed, word gets round, you know. On his girlfriend's parents' bed with the dad's gun, you know. 
So, but when I saw that poor boy's body, he was bifurcated. And I thought, I know that he wanted to make an impression, but he looks ridiculous. He looks so far out of order, it was ridiculous. And I can only tell you that I've had friends who were contemplating, you know, destroying themselves. And I can remember saying to one, a writer in Scotland one time, I said, she was going to jump out of a fourth floor window. And I said, well, I'm sorry, because I'm here and I can't do anything about that. I want you to know I, I care deeply about you. I love your work and words. And you're probably going to look very ridiculous when you hit the pavement. <laughs> and she writes in a book someplace, I have it, that that was one of the things that kept her, that got her off the ledge. Hmm. Would that I could have been there when my daughter was looking over the ledge of the Golden Gate Bridge and, and said something that would have held her back. But we're not in charge of that, apparently. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. So, but I do know that my father thought, if I saw that, it might, it might do me more good than harm. I'm guessing that because I know that when he first saw first time he went into a preparation, an embalming room and saw his uncle, it did him more good than harm. Mm. He thought, I can do this. This is a way that I can help. Mm. Wow. Would you read the poem personal? It's, it's like a personal ad. It is your personal ad. This is kind of who you are these days, I think, in some ways, right? Well, I got to say, yeah, I'll, I'll read it. Yeah, I'll read it. It's called personal. Am old and fat and bald and married twice. Don't drink, don't smoke, I piss and moan too much, I fart and snore, but otherwise am nice enough. And though I amn't rich, I want for nothing. Some say I'm generous to a fault, others that I'm too forgiving. Am looking for someone to travel with to Ireland early on next year. I have a small place on the coast of West Clare between Kilkee and Loophead. Check the map. It's a lovely, wild, treeless country between the ocean and the estuary. Great sunsets, cliff walks by the sea, wildflowers, rainbows, rolling meadows. You can Google it. The little bookish festivals are fun. The nights infused with merriment and song. Maybe you'd rather long talks by the fire, twisting relations with the brogy neighbors. Suit yourself. You could plan to sleep alone. I'm only after good conversation. Someone to share the mealtimes with, the road, the eventual sadness of it all. I'm so tired of talking to myself. I want to hear a voice that isn't mine. Maybe ask how the day went. Would I like a sup of decaf, a lump of goat cheese? I don't know. No hard and fast requirements, no romance, no swooning, no bungee jumping, just ordinary talk. No feigned climaxes, no breathless afterglow, just some chit-chat and commiseration for a month or so. I lift the seat, wipe things clean, put it down again. (laughs) Well, you have... A wicked sense of humor. Yates claimed yeah. he was Yates was my age when he wrote A Wild Old Wicked Man. But I can tell yeah. you, 
I, I've tried to use this as a, you know, as a come hither at, you know, writers conferences never worked. So I eventually had to hire a, a young woman. She's 40 years younger than me, but I hired her to travel with because I couldn't, I couldn't get my former spouse or my current spouse to travel with me anymore. Probably because they figured I talked too much or because of anything else. I, but this young woman, I have to pay her and more than the going rate just to go with me. And it's almost painful to see how different our contexts are. So I can't even, I mean, the beauty of her being is wonderful. And she's very smart and very bookish. And she's good at doing things like setting up the next stop in the road and things like that. But, but she's an employee. Hmm. And it turned out that I was more in the market for an employee. I, I don't think I want to have, you know, I don't know. I just don't know. Yeah, I would go with you for free and listen to the stories. I wish that I do believe that love is love. I just know from my own place, it's not. It wouldn't work for me. Yeah, I'm going to ask you to read one more poem, and this is an earlier poem. It's one of my favorite poems of all time, and I, I I heard the the writer Joy Harjo the other day say that a poem is like a pocket that we can put things into. And I think this poem, you put your life into it. You put the truth about life and death in just a few lines. So beautiful poem I'd like to end with, which is called Refusing at 52 to Write. Well, you're very kind to ask for this, and I'm grateful again to you for your interest. I want you to know that this title comes from the fact that after I wrote this brilliant sonnet and counted the lines, there was one too many. And that's what gave me the title. You know, okay. because poets are very good at that. When when all else fails, they just make up, you know. I don't know if that works with preachers, but it does with poets. Refusing at 52 to write sonnets. It came to him that he could nearly count how many Octobers he had left to him in increments of 10 or, say, 11. Thus, 63, 74, 85. He couldn't see himself at 96. Humanity's advances, notwithstanding in health care, self-help, or new age regimens, what with his habits and family history, the end, he thought, is nearer than you think. The future thus confined to its contingencies. The present moment opens like a gift. The balding month, the gray week, the blue morning, the hours, routine, the minutes, passing glance, all seem like God sends now. And what to make of this? At the end, the word that comes to him is thanks. Thanks. And thank you, Thomas Lynch. Thank you, Jeff. Beautiful. We'll talk again. All right. Thank you for listening to the Reform Journal podcast. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, share this podcast. And until next time, may the peace of Christ be with you.